Well, good morning, students. It's good to be with you again, study God's Word, and to dive into the story of Exodus. We're going to pick up right where we left off from last week, so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 22. Exodus 20, starting in verse 22. As you're finding that passage, um, we're just going to give you the update of where we are. So God has spoken to the people of Israel. He's spoken to Moses. He's given them the Ten Commandments, this kind of universal, timeless law of how they ought to live as God's redeemed people. And now Moses has walked into the thick cloud of darkness on Mount Sinai to receive more instruction. Now there's a lot here for us this morning, and we're not going to get into every verse, but we want to catch the big idea of, of this, that God cares about how we live. God doesn't care just that we believe the right things. He wants us to live out those beliefs in faithfulness and obedience. So God's going to give Israel and, uh, by extension, us, the people of God, the church, a set of principles to follow for Israel's daily life and then for our daily life. We as Christians get to look back at this law. We get to look back at these texts. <clears throat> we get to look back at these texts to understand the heart of God. Now, there's something really important for us to understand, and that is we are not Israel, right? We are not a theocracy. We're not an Old Testament, ancient Near Eastern nation that exists. Uh, we are the church. We're the church of Jesus Christ. We're an embassy of the kingdom of God that's situated in a foreign land. And we're proclaiming day in and day out that our king is coming to rule and to reign over all things. So how is it that we should understand all of these laws and feasts and promises that we're about to see this morning in Exodus? Well, there are two ways we shouldn't see them, right? So there's two ways for us to swerve away from a good understanding. The first way we can misunderstand this truth is by writing off the Old Testament and its laws as unimportant, as outdated, <clears throat> as not for us, right? So um, this, this fails to appreciate the continuity of the covenants between the old and the new, right? If we just think that the Old Testament is outdated, outmoded, not for us, we're going to miss all of the rich truth that the Old Testament has for us because it's the same God who speaks and reveals himself in the Old Testament that speaks and reveals himself in the New. So we don't want to fall off the horse that way. On the other hand, we could try to apply every word in the Old Covenant, every word in the Old Testament in its immediate context to our immediate context. So we could look at these verses and think, well, I shouldn't eat shellfish, and I shouldn't wear mixed fabrics, and I should put someone to death for cursing their mom, right? We can get so hyper-literal in what these words are uh, and miscommunicate the context that we fail to appreciate the discontinuity between the old and new covenants, right? There's a reason why they're called the old and new. There is some difference and some discontinuity there. So what do we do? As Christians, we want to look back at these instructions and look in them for the heart of God. We want to see what God's heart is like, what he intends for us to see about him. And what we'll see is that he loves the broken. We'll see that he opposes the proud, that he values life and, and more. So let's dive in and see how we can live in light of God's word here in the book of Exodus. Now, what we're doing this morning with these texts is called biblical interpretation. A, a big word for that is hermeneutics. And, uh, I hope that it's something that you would have a passion for, that you would want to understand the Bible rightly. And so a very basic structure of how to do 
hermeneutics, how to do biblical interpretation is this. First, we want to read the text, right? We want to understand the text. And second, we want to figure out what that text meant in its original context. So what did this text mean to Israel when Moses wrote it down, right? That's the second thing. Third, we want to learn what timeless truths these texts reveal. So when we read this text in Exodus and we understand the context immediately for Israel, we want to say, what kind of principles does this teach us about who God is? What kind of principles does it teach us about our own sinful condition? What, what kind of principles does it tell us about how to live as followers of God? So that's the third thing. And then finally, once we've done the first three, we want to apply those timeless truths to our own lives. We want to take those principles, we want to take that treasure that we receive from God's Word and apply it to our own context. Now, it's really, really important that we don't just jump from step one, reading the text, to step four, applying it to our own lives, right? We don't want to ask the question, what does this text mean to me, until we have answered the questions, what did this text mean originally, and what does this text teach me about who God is? What does this text teach me about God's world, his creation. So we want to make sure we're doing all of those things well before we apply it to our own lives, especially when we get to these old covenant texts. Well, we're going to look at four distinct sections, three small ones and one big one. We start with the first small one with worship and the altar. So find Exodus chapter 20, and I'm going to start reading in verse 22. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Let's pray before we go any further. God in heaven, we're so thankful for your word, and we pray that by the power of your spirit, you might give us eyes to see and to understand and to apply your truth. We want to submit ourselves to the authority of your word and be transformed by your power. So will you do that in Jesus' name? Amen. All right, notice in this text, when we're thinking about worship and the altar and and how we should worship the Lord as the people of Israel, we want to notice that God gives instruction not only that he should be worshipped, but specifically how he should be worshipped. Now, we mentioned this last week when we walked through the Ten Commandments, but it's good for us to to be reminded that God has commanded specifically ways in which he wants his people to worship him. So in those days, pagan nations would set up ornate, beautiful, stone-cut altars to show off their creativity and their craftsmanship. The worship actually became more focused on themselves rather than the idols that they were worshiping. So not only that, but their worship was often immoral, it was often very obscene, it was often very explicit. And so in this text, the Lord directs Moses that Israel is not to be like the other nations. They're not to make names for themselves in the worship of their God. They're not to be inappropriate or explicit or obscene in how they worship the Lord. Instead, their worship practices ought to be proper, they ought to be orderly, and they ought to be focused on the Lord himself, right? The, the, 
the beauty of the altar is not the point, right? It's the Lord to whom we're sacrificing to. That's the point. We, we don't want to put our emphasis and our time and our energy and our uh, allegiance and our, our captivity, our, our imaginations rather, on the, the way that we worship, but on the God that we worship. So the implication for us is twofold, right? First, we worship God as He sees fit. That's the application for you and me as Christians. We don't just get to decide how we want to worship the Lord. He has given us instruction. So for believers, we gather together as the church, ideally in a physical space together as the people of God, but, but like this, virtually, as we're gathered together around the Word, we gather as the church to worship in spirit and truth. We proclaim the good news of the gospel to the world around us. We sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. We practice biblical community and hospitality. We welcome new believers through the waters of baptism. We partake of the Lord's Supper there together in a service. We seek to be faithful to how God has revealed for us to worship Him. We want to be careful to worship Him as He has commanded. So that's the first application. The second is this, we want to do all of those things in a manner that honors the Lord and models holiness. So we don't want to be flippant or casual about our worship. Now that doesn't mean that we have to be stuffy with our worship either. It doesn't mean that we're just mechanical and lifeless and emotionless and we only do these things very uh, mechanically. No, we want to have life in our worship, but it, but it means it doesn't mean stuffy, it doesn't mean rigid, it doesn't mean mechanical, but it does mean pure. It does mean holy. It does mean serious. It does mean intentional. We don't want to take the worship of God lightly because God doesn't take His worship lightly. So that's worship and the altar. The next section is a big section for us this morning, chapter 21, almost all the way through chapter 23. We're not going to read all of that together, but, but this is what I'm, I'm calling case law. Case law. This is a, a section of instructions that serve as guiding principles for the people of Israel. So unlike the timeless, unchanging Ten Commandments, this kind of master law, these case laws function as interpretations and applications of the Ten Commandments. So they're guidelines for how Israel ought to practically live day in and day out. Now before we get into the case law, let me talk about football for a minute. I love football. I think a lot of you love football. It's a sport that's been around our country for a long time, right? Everybody's at least vaguely familiar with it. Um, people's lives revolve around football schedules. Um, and we know that, that the sport takes skill, it takes strength, it takes teamwork to do well in a football game. Uh, you can't just know the rules of football, but you have to have practice with uh, ball handling skills and running plays and defending against your opponent. And football has a lot of complexity in it, and many people get to enjoy the, the rich complexity of that game. They understand it. They love it. And, and people love when, when there's uh, low-scoring games. People love when there's high-scoring games, right? Like four to three. Or maybe like five to two. Wait, that's not the kind of football that you were thinking of? So see, I'm, I'm thinking of football like the world thinks about football. We may know the word as soccer, but the world understands that sport as Football, But up until this point, you may have been thinking that I was talking about something completely different, right? Another sport, American football. Things for which all of the things that I've said are true, and yet I'm talking about something very, very different. Here's the point. Students, you and I can use a word, and if we're not careful, we will carry meaning and context from our own time and culture 
and place it somewhere it doesn't need to go, right? Now, I mention this because the first set of case laws here in Exodus 21 has to do with slavery and how slaves ought to be treated in Israel. And if you and I are not careful, we'll read this text and we will we will import our understanding of what we mean by slavery and slaves and place it on the foot of Israel's door and say, Israel had slaves? I can't understand. How does this make sense? Why would they own slaves? That's terrible. When you and I think of slavery, we think of the transatlantic slave trade. We think of Africans being stolen from their homes and their country, being brought overseas to work to death, basically, to be this kind of owned property. We think of ruthless plantations and oppression. We think of separate but not equal. But that is not what the book of Exodus has in mind here. Slaves in this context were much more like employees. Uh, There were workers. They were volunteering for service, and they served a six-year contract. They could buy their freedom. They could buy another's freedom if they desired to get out of that contract. But in this text, we see that Slaves have rights, right? Flip over to Exodus 21, verse 26. We see here that slave owners are not allowed to mistreat their slaves. He says, when a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. Now remember, these are just principles. So it's not just you can harm the slave in any way, but if you hurt his eye or hurt her tooth, they have to go. No, it's If you bring harm to the slave, they don't have to work for you anymore. If you abuse your power, they don't have to to work for you anymore. There are many other sections here in the case law, right? There, There are many things like this that we see how Israel ought to live. The death penalty often was invoked for a variety of crimes in this text. Why? Does the death penalty mean that God thinks that life is not very valuable? No, quite the opposite. When someone commits murder in Israel... It says here that the only punishment that fits that crime is to take the life of the murderer, right? Life for life. There are laws also about restitution or, or making something right. In other words, there's a grand principle in the life of Israel that if you do something wrong and bring harm to a person or bring harm to their property, you should make it right. You shouldn't just go off as though nothing has happened, right? Let me show you two examples. Flip down to Exodus chapter 22 starting in verse 5. It says, If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over, or lets his beast loose, and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. Verse 6, If fire breaks out and catches in thorns, so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. All right, what's the point? It's that God wants the people of Israel to live fairly with one another, but he also wants them to see something else, right? He gives all of these commands for capital punishment about bringing harm against people, and yet when there's harm against material goods like grain or a field, he, he calls for restitution. Do you see the difference here? Material goods are not worth the same as human life. God is trying to show the people of Israel something special about their own value as human beings. Now, in other nations around Israel, you steal something, you're dead. You set fire to another person's field, you're dead. 
And so God is showing Israel that punishment for crimes should be equitable to the crime committed. There should be a kind of justice and fairness in this new society, in this new nation, the people of God. It's why in America, if you steal a pack of gum from the store, you may have to pay a fine, but you're not going to prison for 30 years, right? Because that punishment would not fit that crime. So finally, in this section, God gives Moses laws about social justice. Now, these are case laws for how society ought to function. So, for example, marriage should be the means by which families are created, not sin. Skip down to verse 16 of chapter 22. It says, If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. Now let's just stop there and just think, what's going on in this text? This is about a man and a woman who are not married and they are living in sin. They're lying with one another. They're staying with one another. They are acting like they're married, but they are not. And so the law requires that they should get married. They shouldn't live in sin. As long as the woman's father and therefore the whole family is for it, this family should be brought together. This man and this woman should become husband and wife. You see the point here? God is saying there is no part of your life that is outside of my command, outside of my rule. These laws require that Israel be honest, not for personal gain, Because honesty is right. We're supposed to tell the truth and do the right thing even when it's difficult, even when it's hard, even when it exposes our own sin or perhaps even the sins of others. Let me give you another example. Exodus 23, starting in verse 1, it says, You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with with the many to do evil. Nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Right, So you should be fair and just and righteous in all of your dealings. Not only do these, these laws give Israel basic foundations for living in a godly society, it also calls them to go the extra mile. Keep reading in Exodus 23, starting in verse 4. Listen to how countercultural this sounds. It says, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You see the point here? Even your enemies, God says, among the people who you live with, you should do right by them. You should be loving towards them. In To sum all of this up, actually, he will later in the book of Leviticus, and then Jesus will say this again, to sum up all of these things, it's to say that you should love your neighbor as yourself. This is what God wants for his people. So these verses and more show us that in our worship, in our work, in our failures, and in our daily lives, God wants us to be honest and faithful and holy. Again, there is no aspect of your life or mine that is off limits to God's loving and good rule. And that's the takeaway for us, isn't it? That that you and I are to surrender our whole lives to God as living sacrifices and as spiritual worship to Him. That's what Paul tells us in Romans 12, right? To devote ourselves, to devote our whole lives as living sacrifices. So, So maybe a question for you even right now is, 
You should ask the Lord to see, is this true in my own life? Have I surrendered my whole life to the rule of God? Have I, have I brought my whole life under His Lordship? And if the answer to that is no, then, then friend, brother, sister, student, this is good news. You can confess and repent right now. And if you're trying to rule your own life, rather than following God's Word, you can ask the Lord in this moment to give you grace, to, to be led by His Spirit rather than your own flesh. So those are the case laws that we find here in Exodus. All right, next, we want to see the next section here in Exodus chapter 23. And we move from case laws and kind of practical tips for how we ought to live as a society to the, the, the theme of Sabbath and festivals. And this is kind of foreign to us, right? We don't, we don't usually have festivals. We don't usually um, follow this kind of rhythm the same way that Israel did. But there's, there's something for us here, I believe. So we want to mention the Sabbath day and the Sabbath year and the feasts to say this. Israel's whole life had a rhythm to it. And it wasn't a self-created rhythm. It was a God-given rhythm. The, the way that Israel's schedule and calendar functioned was around these things that God has given them to remember and to practice. So, so one day a week, the people of Israel would rest. And one year out of seven, they would let their land rest. So, so God is preparing them, even now, to enjoy a fruitful, blessed life. And as they rest in that Sabbath day, one day a week, or as they relax on that Sabbath year, one year out of seven. Remember last week we talked about how the Sabbath is a reminder and a promise for this future time to come where we will enjoy God's rest forever. And that one day a week, that one year out of seven, we get to get a taste. We get to catch a glimpse of life in God's rest. So next, God gives them some information on three specific feasts. So let's pick up in verse 14 of Exodus 23. He says, Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest, of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. All right, so three times a year, Israel would enjoy a feast and remember the Lord. So we have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's to help Israel remember the Exodus that's finished off with the Passover meal. We have the Feast of Harvest for when the first fruits of their fields appear and they get to celebrate how God is providing for them. And finally, they get to enjoy this Feast of Ingathering when they gather all of the fruits of their labor in the fields. In other words, Israel's whole life revolved around worshiping the Lord and connecting where they are and what they have to who He is and what He's done. There, there's time over and over again in the life of Israel to be reminded that their possessions, their freedom, their land, their material goods are not ultimately from them. They're ultimately from God. And they want to remember and worship the Lord who gives them every good and perfect gift. 
And while there are many, many things that we could say about the significance of the feasts, the theological importance, the, the types that they get to provide for us when we get to the New Testament, the main idea that I want you to have this morning is this. The life of God's people was to be locked in around the worship of God. Everything that they did, everything that they scheduled, all of their organization was revolving around the worship of God. Nothing in the life of Israel competed with corporate worship. Now that's difficult for you and me, right? Because we have busy lives, we have busy schedules, we don't live in a nation that is uh, orbiting around the worship of King Jesus. But for our own lives, for our own families, for our own sake, we can see this principle that nothing should compete in our lives with remembering and gathering together to worship the Lord who's given us everything. Now that may mean that for your own life, maybe for the life of your family, that causes you to have to prioritize certain things. What's more important than the worship of God? What's more important than bringing honor and praise and worship to the one who saved us from our sins? I think even in this season of life right now, we're seeing what is essential, what's important, and what's not essential and not important. And I hope that by watching this and gathering together with the people here uh, at Lakeview, you, you're, you're realizing that gathering together around the Word of God is essential. It's important. And it's something that we shouldn't give up lightly. Well, the last thing I want you to see here in this text is this promise of a future land to come. Remember, Israel's been wandering in the wilderness for a while. They're at the foot of Mount Sinai, and they've been promised that they will go into Canaan. They will be going into a new land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And we get to catch a promise of what's to come for Israel here. That not only will they enter this land by God's grace and his power, but they will defeat all of their enemies as they enter in. So let's read starting in verse 20 of Exodus 23. It says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Let's just stop there. God wants to know, God wants to remind Israel, and he wants Israel to know clearly and confidently that he will be the one to accomplish the task before them. Israel on their own is weak, they're fearful, they're powerless, but with God before them and behind them, they are unstoppable. And the angel of God will bring them to the place that God has prepared for them. And the rest of this section highlights the holiness of God's people that must be maintained. So God's going to tell them, don't make covenants with the pagan nations. Don't worship their gods. Don't fall into their idolatry. Don't fall into their false practices. In a word, he says, don't get caught in their snare. Don't get caught in their trap. Instead, trust and follow me, God says, and I will bless you. If you'll follow my word, if you'll follow my angel, if you will stay in my will, then I will bless you, 
I will protect you. I will provide for you. And in a very real sense, students, that's the same kind of promise that God gives to us. Now, we're not the people of Israel. We're not going to conquer a land, right? We're not going to settle in a, uh, an area in the Middle East. But instead, God has sent someone to lead us into the true and better promised land, right? He sent his son, Jesus, that we might follow him in faith as we follow him into eternal life. He has redeemed us from our sin, just as God has redeemed Israel from slavery. But we're still not home yet. Just like Israel wanders in the wilderness, you and I are not home yet. We're still wandering in a world that is not our home. And as we wander in this wilderness, there are so many other voices and other gods, other idols. There are snares all around us enticing us, attracting us to them. There are voices clamoring for our affection and our love and our allegiance. But if we follow the Lord and His Word, blessing will come. Now, remember, what what does it mean to be blessed? It doesn't necessarily mean that I have a lot of material goods or I'm healthy or I have no problems in my life. Instead, to be blessed is to experience the power and presence of God in my own life to be aware of His mercy and His grace in my life. And if I follow the Lord and follow His Word, God says, I will be blessed. It says, I will enjoy His power and His presence. If if you and I, as God's people, as Christians, commit our lives to His loving rule, then we can rest assured that He is for us, that He protects us, and that He ultimately will deliver us from all of our enemies, even the worst of all of our enemies, our very own sin. Jesus has come to lead us into this promised land. And the question is for you this morning is, are you following him? Are you following the messenger that God has given for us to follow? Are you listening to his word? Are you obeying his rule? Because blessing is found in no other place. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you for the book of Exodus. We thank you for the truth that we find there. And as we have to do some digging and and understanding of what these texts meant in their original context so that we might find these timeless truths about who you are and what your heart is like, God, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would help us to submit our lives without reservation to your loving rule. We pray that we would be marked and transformed by your word that we would live as holy, godly people, that we would worship you how you want to be worshipped, that we would obey your good and loving law all of our days in all aspects of our life, that we would trust you with the promises that you give to us, that you will lead us one day into your own presence. We will see you face to face. And until that day comes, Lord, we pray that we would seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.